0: Welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Uagba. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better, aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly and you can listen to them live on NTS or download them via iTunes, so make sure you subscribe now to automatically get each new episode straight to your phone. On today's show, I'm going to be talking to Abigail Bergstrom, who is the head of publishing at digital talent agency Gleam, where she works to translate the voices of some of the UK's biggest digital talents and content creators onto the written page. Abigail started out her career working at the publisher Simon & Schuster working her way up from publicity assistant to senior commissioning editor, and publishing books by the likes of Everyday Sexism founder Laura Bates and lifestyle blogger Garance Doré, to name just a few. I'm really pleased to have her on the show as I'm hoping she'll help me demystify the process of getting a book deal and becoming a published author, which is one of the most frequent questions I get in my inbox and something that Abigail, as a seasoned publishing professional who's worked in multiple areas of the industry, is very well placed to give advice on. Also coming up, an Ask a Tega segment in which I give some advice to someone who's dealing with a toxic and misogynistic culture at work. Before I get into that though, here's my conversation with Abigail.
1: My first job in publishing, well technically I I interned at Granta Books and Granta Magazine for a while. Um, And they're a kind of independent literary publisher. Um, I think that's where I sort of decided that publishing was the right kind of place for me Um, and from there I got a job as a publicity assistant at Simon & Schuster.
0: Okay and when you say you got a job, sorry because I really want to break this down for people who are thinking about getting into publishing, did you see like a grad scheme opening or like how did you kind of get your foot in that door at Simon & Schuster?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was really hard. It was really tough. Um, I'd just moved back from Hong Kong, and I didn't have a flat in London, so I was kind of sleeping on friends' sofas and just doing an in- doing internships and trying my best to get as much experience as I could. Um, and yeah, applied for multiple you know entry-level jobs at publishing that I didn't get <laughs> um, and fortunately actually after I'd left this internship I went and got a job at a digital advertising agency um, because I kind of understood that publishing was really interested in ebooks and digital and I thought maybe if I went and got a bit of knowledge in that area it might help me. Um, and then whilst I was there, somebody at Granter who I'd worked with put me forward for a role. Um, somebody he knew got in contact saying, I'm looking for a new publicity assistant. You know, do, do you know anyone good? Can you recommend anyone? So he said, I've sent her your CV, get in touch. Um, so yeah, I suppose in the end it sort of came down to that, uh, who, you know, making contacts, I guess, and who I knew. But I'd made those quite organically. And how
0: long were you working on the publicity side of things before you transfer to commissioning books and working as an editor because my understanding of publishing is that they're two quite separate functions.
1: Yes yeah definitely so um, I was I was there for about six months in the publicity department before I moved across to editorial. Um, an editorial assistant role came up, but it was really interesting actually because when I got into publishing, I think I always thought that fiction was the area that I would go into. I never really considered nonfiction, um, but I sort of sitting with the fiction editors, I didn't feel like I fit in. It sort of there was something there that made me felt a bit uneasy you know is this the right role for me am I going I mean this doesn't quite fit and I don't know why and I remember um, having a kind of sales conference meeting and that's where uh, your the editors kind of pitched their books to the sales teams and to the marketing publicity teams, let them know what's coming, what we're gonna be publishing the next year. Um and I remember the nonfiction team just kind of like slow mo, sort of like strutting in. And they were these kind of like And they're like the cool kids. They were the cool kids. They were they were misfits. They were like super sarcastic. They swore the whole time. They were hilarious. And I just I just was like oh my people I yeah. feel I get it the penny sort of drops when I was like ah non okay mm-hmm. and so again I think it was it was the people that led me um, to apply for the nonfiction editorial system role mm-hmm. so I moved across um, and then I commissioned my first book six months later wow which yeah is, is I mean I was lucky I think if I'd been at a different publishing house I maybe there would have been boundaries put up yeah. or uh, perhaps um, if I brought forward, an idea would have been taken off me and I would have kind of helped. Um, but I, I pitched the idea for Everyday Sexism. And I think at the time... That was the first book you commissioned? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I sound like I'm bragging now. No, you <laughs> absolutely don't. But I just... It's almost like
0: you kind of buried the lead slightly with that one. <laughs> so I carry Ooh, on. Well,
1: I... Uh, yeah, there was I guess there was nobody there, um, nobody on the editorial team at that time who kind of... Got, got it, really, I suppose, or, or or wanted to wanted to take it on. And um, I had a really great mentor who kind of helped me and briefed me with the questions that they would ask. You know, you when you take an idea to the editorial team and you present it to them, you know, you get asked questions. They try and find the holes in the idea. And, you know, I was well briefed for that. So I think my boss was impressed by the fact that I had answers to all of his questions. Can you actually
0: explain for anyone who doesn't quite understand you know publishing and how it works what is the role of a commissioning editor like how do you work with authors and internally as within the publisher and with agents for instance like what did you actually do as part of that job
1: sure so yeah as a as a commissioning editor um you're ta- tasked with um you know commissioning books it's your job to go out there and find the books that are going to fill the list for the following year or the year after that Um, And sometimes you're tasked with commissioning X amount of titles. Uh, Sometimes you are asked to commission within a certain area, um, be it sport or humor, etc. And a lot of that is, you know, a lot of the big publishers, they don't receive unsolicited submissions so unless you've got an agent representing you they don't kind of look and sift through slush piles, I guess they just don't have the time, I mean I know they just don't have the time Um, so a big part of their job is having amazing relationships with agents so that these literary agents know where to send them and who to send each project to Uh, so, but, but, but I guess at at a junior level, you know, an agent's not going to send something to you. They're sending things to your seniors who have already proven themselves in the space and already kind of shown they're brilliant at their jobs and already have relationships. You know, you're got, you're not getting lunch done. You're not lunching agents when you're an editorial assistant, for example. So I think a lot of people, particularly in nonfiction, Um, come up with the idea themselves and and will approach an author direct and try and get a project off the ground in-house that doesn't demand that. And I suppose that was what happened with everyday sexism. I kind of saw what Laura was doing. I thought it was amazing. And so I reached out to her and sort of said, you know, have you ever thought about uh, writing a book? That's Um,
0: I think it's actually really interesting that you have sort of made clear that that's how it happened because one of the things I was going to ask is to what extent does it happen that like a publisher or even an agent kind of has an idea or a concept that they think would make a really good book and then kind of looks for someone appropriate to bring that to life. Is that how you'd say that that worked in that instance or was it a bit different?
1: Yeah I think that's how that worked in that instance and I think a lot of publishers today are trying to do that I think they're trying to be more dynamic and and come up with the ideas themselves you know there are a lot of um there are a lot of pros to that and they can retain the the IP so commercially speaking sometimes as well it makes it makes more sense and yeah certainly you know there have been huge successes off the back of that I think you know that um the Ladybird series of books you know the hipster yeah Yeah, and and you know it, wildly successful and huge, you know, commercially very, very successful and that was an idea that came up, you know, at Hachette uh, with a table of editors sat around, you know, sat around the table and that came up, that was an idea that came up in-house. It certainly wasn't an idea uh, pitched by an agent. So I think they work in both ways but on the whole as a as a commissioning editor I think you know, the, the the job of an editor in-house is you're driving that project, you're the catalyst for it, you're working with the author, but you're also talking to production about how the paper needs to look or what font you're going to go for. You're talking to, you know, a lawyer about the legal read, you're talking to sales so that they fully you know, have like an erudite idea of what this book is so they can pitch it in the one minute that they have with Waterstones mm-hmm. um, and, and, and marketing, PR, etc., there are all these different facets as an editor, you're kind of like an octopus and you're pushing along all these different directions. So I think it's really hard for them as much as they would love to spend time coming up with ideas and nurturing them independently, you know, as an agent, that's what I do. That's what I spend all my time doing because by the time, you know, when I, when I get in contact with the uh, editor, the idea is fully formed. There's a pitch, there's a sample material, there's an outline of the idea and what it will be. Um, and so, you know, that, it takes a long time to get that off the ground and there's sometimes a lot of back and forth between the author and the agent to create this pitch proposal um, that's, yeah, that kind of shows the idea.
0: You were at Simon & Schuster for how long?
1: Uh, About five years. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then a couple of years ago, you decided to leave to join Gleam. Can you tell me a bit about that decision and why you decided to do that?
1: Yeah, so I think I've been at Gleam for three years um, this March. Um, so uh, I guess uh, there, there was a few reasons as to why I left. I think the first is I was starting to lose the fire in my belly for commissioning. It started to feel to me a bit of a production line. Commissioned the book, briefed the cover, you know, sales presentation, blah, 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 XYZ. I, I just I wasn't as excited by it anymore. Um, and I felt that maybe I needed to try something new. And I was very aware of kind of having multiple skill sets and not just kind of sitting and, and doing one thing. Um, so I felt I needed to challenge myself in that way. Um and I published Louise Pentland, uh, her nonfiction book. And she worked at, she was one of the talent, a kind of YouTuber, social influencer at Glean Futures. And that's how I started my relationship with them. Um, and I had a breakfast meeting with Dom, their CEO. And he was just kind of talking, you know, publishing, YouTuber publishing was exploding. It was doing incredibly well. Every publisher in town was trying to kind of get hold of his talent and do books with them. And so, you know, I think he was just wanting to have a conversation really about that and and what, what they were doing. And... He sort of said that they were. He was looking for somebody to come over who had publishing knowledge that could kind of bridge that gap. Somebody that got social, online, digital talent, but who also had a knowledge of publishing in that world and how it worked. Um, and when I sort of sat and looked at my projects at Simon and Schuster, most of the things that I published had a digital thread, be it everyday sexism that was based on you know a, a, a Twitter and a, and a website, effectively. Or Garen Sture, who was a, you know one of the very early fashion bloggers. I love her blog. Oh, I love her too. She's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, it sort of made sense. And this idea of, you know, going from books, which is such an old fashioned media, and kind of at this cross section of print and digital and, and at Glean being on the cusp of new media, it felt like a really exciting opportunity, so.
0: What was that transition like for you? Because not only were you changing sort of role, you're going from a commissioning editor to an agent, you were also setting up an entirely new division, a digital first company, like that's a lot of change to make in just one job yeah. job, job hop, like how was that?
1: Yeah, I remember like one of my friends, <laughs> one of my publishing friends, Harriet sort of, do, do, you, do you know, do you even know how to be an agent? <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, that's what
0: I was going to ask. So well, I was like, "Did you, how
1: did you learn how to do that? I mean, uh, well, when I when I got to Gleam, I mean, the, the day that I got there, you know, I was handed a laptop and it was like, there you go. And, then, <laughs> and that, that was it. And Tom like, introduced me to the team sat and that was it. I was left to my own devices. And that, you know, I was, I was terrified. Of course I was terrified. I was really scared. But I think, again, I, I left SNS s because I wasn't scared anymore. And I mm. think that fear or that like, Oh shit! Am I going to do this wrong? Or do I know what I'm doing? That's good. That's good because that's what pushes you forward and that's what makes you learn. Um, and,
0: wholeheartedly agree.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I had a, I had a really good idea. I, you know, I had a good idea of what an agent did, and of course, I'd, I'd kind of done my research, and I felt that it was something that I could do. And mainly, it was about setting up a process for the existing talent there and setting up a publishing process for Gleam, um, which is what I did the kind of first year that mm. I worked there. Um, yeah.
0: So can you explain to me? what exactly your role involves what does a literary agent do generally
1: sure so I spend a lot of my time because of the nature of what I do as well which is predominantly non-fiction although I definitely do do fiction and we're looking to do more I just spend a lot of my time reading consuming um reading as much as I can I'm really interested in kind of zeitgeist publishing um books that are um, tapping into social issues or are kind of tapping into controversial t- controversial topics that aren't necessarily being widely written about um, and so it's quite reactive and responsive in that sense so I will uh, come across somebody who I think is doing something amazing um, and reach out to them and see if they're interested in writing a book or sometimes they'll send me and I, you know, Abby, I want to write a book about X, Y, Z and I'll have a meeting with them and decide if maybe I'm the right fit for them. Um, So sometimes they come to me, sometimes I go to them. Um, And I guess it's a lot of my job is idea generation Um, and then working with that author um, to pull together a really solid proposal or perhaps, you know, editing that novel and getting it into shape so that it's ready to be submitted. And then a huge part of my job is having great relationships with editors, you know, knowing exactly what they're looking for, um, knowing who to send what, Uh, it's interesting the smallest of details about an editor can really help you know when something comes in you're like ah I know she'll like this because I remember that time she was saying that her sister does this and it's you know connecting all those dots and making sure you're getting it into the right hands publishing is a a small world but at the same time there's so many different imprints and lots of different specialities and My job is about understanding all of those editors' different tastes and knowing if they're going to love something or hate something.
0: Mm. And whether they're going to match up with your author's kind of tastes and and the way they like to work. Definitely,
1: definitely. And market knowledge, you know, looking like what's Mm. working in the market, Mm. where's it going, what's not working, what's going to be the next best thing. It's kind of an agent's job to be ahead of the curve and, you know, you you don't want to be sending something out when it's already in the bestseller list because the reality is there's a lot of copycatting in publishing.
0: Um, I want to walk through the kind of i guess the process of getting a book deal and getting published because as i was saying before that's kind of one of the most common questions that i get people asking me um sort of like dming me and emailing me but the reality is i have one answer which is my own story yeah and i kind of have i think a good idea of how it works more generally but i think it's still really great to have someone like you who is you know a professional um kind of explain that so when it comes to getting an agent where should you look
1: one of the things that you could do is if you have a, like, if you've read a book and you love it, so say there's a particular area of fiction that you love reading and that you've, ri- you've written a novel in, go to the back of the book and look at the acknowledgements because nine times out of ten, the author will have thanked their agent and have named them. So that's a really good way of tracking an agent who you know is interested in that type of um, literature. I think Twitter albeit obvious is actually a really great space to track down agents there's you know they're all on there they're all talking about the types of books they're working on they're all putting out what it is that they're looking for you can there are various websites um it's called the, Artist and writers workbook, I believe, and if you go online there, it will list all the different agencies. And if you go on, there's normally a photograph of the agent and their profile with who they are, what they what they're looking for. So you can find on there who's the right person for you. And then you know you send an email. And my advice would be keep it short. Okay. You know, send an you know a pithy short email of what your idea for your novel is or what your idea for the nonfiction is, and then maybe attach one chapter sample okay you know if you're a busy a- agent you know sometimes I've got a whole novel I think oh gosh I haven't got time to read that I'll put that there and come back to it later whereas if it's like I've attached a chapter then I'll just end up clicking on it and think oh I can just do this now while I make my lunch or or whatever so I think a short pithy sales pitch actually you know you're pitching your idea for your book and you've got to make it sound exciting
0: and what should you look out for in terms of determining whether an agent let's say you have a meeting with an agent or you have a meeting with a couple of agents how do you know whether someone's a good fit for you
1: i think so much of that is um chemistry i mean you know, you're, you're you're going to be able to find out exactly what other books this agent's done or who they've represented. So one good thing to do is speak to some of their authors, you know, reach out to them and kind of ask how their experience has been and, and whether they recommend this agent. I think that's like a really great way to talk to somebody who's already worked with them um but 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 the main thing is just get chemistry this person's going to be acting on behalf of you they're going to be your voice so you have to feel that you trust them or that they feel like-minded or that they are the type of person that you would want to be sat in a room acting as your mouthpiece when when you when you're not there to have your own voice
0: and say once you've got yourself an agent what happens next do you guys immediately put together a proposal do you start reaching out to publishers like what does that process look like
1: yeah, so um, say, for example, it's a non-fiction project then. Then, yeah, the first step would be putting together a proposal. So I normally start by um, asking the author to go away and write like a 1,500-word to 2,000-word introduction. And that's just them kind of like, like vomit your ideas down on the page and try and outline what this book is, what you want it to achieve, why you're writing it, why you are the person to write it. And like an initial way just to get their idea down and from there we can start carving it out. And off the back of that, you can develop chapter outlines um, and kind of go into more detail in terms of the content and what you want to cover and what's going to come in there. And then off the back of that, then I'd ask them to go away and write a, a chapter sampler. So a chapter in full so that the editor will get a full idea as to the tone of their writing and the tone of the book um and then yeah I guess from that as well you want to talk about comparison titles and again this is the agent's job for them to have a pitch or a um a kind of bridge so for example I just did a deal for Mrs Hinch the cleaning phenomenon yeah that's amazing (laughs) she's amazing and the pitch for that book was kind of Marie Kondo meets Towie
0: yes I love that so
1: that's really important you know kind of creating making it easy for editors, basically. This is what this is. Mm. This is something that's done well and mm. this is this is this angle on it. Yeah. Um, but then how do you avoid falling into the trap of being a copycat? Because just
0: earlier you said that with publishing, there is a lot of kind of copycatting and yeah. once one thing does well, then editors will go out and try and commission a whole bunch of things that kind of look... Similar
1: to that thing. I mean, totally. I've, I've already had several editors say to me, you know, after Mrs. Hinch, I've had so many proposals from cleaning influencers. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming through. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess there's a business to be made in it. There's a business to be made in copycatting, for example. So look at um, Adam Kay's This Is Going To Hurt I mean that book's done phenomenally well. The it's a memoir of a junior doctor, and off the back of that, there's been a memoir of a barrister, the secret barrister. That book's done incredibly well. Um, a memoir of a nurse, and, and so on and so on. And eventually, the readers will get bored. The market will dry up. It'll become saturated, and people will be will feel I can't be bothered to read another memoir of an, you know of another profession. Um, so, it's it works for a while. So I understand why people do it, and I mean. Um, <laughs> subconsciously i guess we all do i'm sure you know i'm sure i I definitely will have taken ideas from other successes and you know imitation in art is only natural well yeah i think it's
0: very rare to be the first and only person who decides that an idea is worth pursuing
1: totally things are always informed by other things yeah um But yeah, I suppose the breakout hits are always, the really big breakout hits are often no one saw that coming. Where did that come from? No one, like a street cat named Bob. Yes. No one saw that being as successful as it was.
0: And they often, there's almost like a kind of like secret alchemy to them where it's like you can try and replicate it and try and get like a street cat named, I don't know, like... Adele. yeah Adele. <laughs> and it just won't have
1: the same yeah, effect um, a street so pitcher doing... named Adele no oh, I mean, that actually sounds quite catchy I
0: I'd buy that I'd read that um so once you've put together a proposal you've got something together with an author and you're both happy with it yeah um and that goes out to commissioning editors I kind of want you to step back into your commissioning editor role yeah and explain how that acquisitions process works in the sense what determines whether or not an editor buys a book
1: So yeah, as a as an editor, then so, you know an, an email pops up, and I get you'll have a relationship with that agent, so you'll probably already have an idea if you have a lot in common taste-wise. You might have worked with them before, um, so yeah, presumably that that I mean, think the agent plays a role. You might be quite excited to see that name pop up in your inbox, or you might be like, oh god, got another <laughs> thing from here that I'm gonna have to turn down. Um, so yeah, you you read the proposal, and if it's something that you love, and I think you know the, the editor's job is to have a real vision. It's the publishing strategy. It's the what's the format, what time of year am I publishing this, who's the audience, like where's it going to sit in retail, it's that kind of, it's that more focused um, kind of vision for it um, and if they love it, the first process will be for them to take it forward to an editorial meeting so they'll sit with all of the other editors that, that they work with and uh, that, that they'll send the material around on email before the meeting so everyone has a chance to read it and it'll be discussed and they'll sort of say this is how I see it, you know, or big autumn memoir for this year or you know great clean eating January title whatever it might be um, and if there's a kind of agreement editorially and creatively that, that the project's a good idea and that they would be a good home for it then it goes forward to acquisitions and at that point that's when the editor is sort of like costing up the kind of PL, how much it going to cost me to produce this book you know or how much am I realistically going to be able to commission it for um, and then the acquisitions meeting its the, it's the big one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've heard editors talk about that. It's not, it sounds a bit nerve wracking. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, baptism of fire, so to speak. But it's, it's, I suppose, you know, you're in that room, you are presenting this book to, you know, it might be the CEO or it might be the publisher across the board or the MD. And then it's your head of sales, it's your head of marketing, it's your head of PR, it's your head of rights. It's the most senior people in the business working across each department um, who've obviously got vast amount of knowledge and experience. And I guess the point is to um, have a conversation. But the point I think is also to challenge that editor. Well, what about this? Have you thought about that? Well, yeah, that book that book did really well, and you're using that as a comparison. But it did well because of this, this, and this, and this book that you're pitching doesn't have that. So it's this it's it's a moment to kind of challenge and kind of break down the idea to really determine whether it is something that you know this editor wants to take on, or whether it's something that that this publishing house can publish well. You know, a PR person might sort of say, "There's no hook for this. It's going to be really hard to PR." And you, you know, at the moment, people want X, Y, and Z, and pr- press in this area is not doing so well. Um, or rights person might say ah this is hot stuff right now I can sell this in this territory in this territory in this territory I'd love to get my hands on this make sure we get will rights so it's really for each like head of the department to feed in from their perspective and and, and, and take a more holistic viewpoint
0: I think the the reason I asked that and I think the reason it's quite important for kind of aspiring writers and authors to know about that process is so that people understand the number of factors that go into determining whether or not you get a book deal or whether someone makes an offer on your book. Because it's obviously, I think, a really, really important thing is to, you know, write a brilliant book and to be a brilliant writer. But also there are lots of other commercial considerations that I think determine whether or not a book gets bought. And it might be, you know, a really interesting idea, but just commercially not a goer.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, sometimes it could be that the novel is just... The, you know that editor feels it's the best novel they've ever read, mm. and it and it and you know, gosh, if you look at the, <clears throat> the sales figures of literary fiction these days and the ones that are actually working in the market, it's fucking depressing to be quite blunt. Um, it's really hard mm. to launch literary fiction, mm. um, and so you've got to you know you're putting all your um, you're putting all your kind of mites behind you're backing that horse, and if that's the horse you're going to back that year, that's going to be your big debut literary fiction launch, and you know you obviously publishers are buying books. Um, you know, they're a business; they're looking to make money. But of course, you know, a lot of publishers are looking to publish phenomenal writers yeah. that are going to change the world, or at least kind of change the way people think about the world. And maybe they'll be award winning, or maybe they'll be. So, not every publisher is as commercially minded as the next. Okay, um, it depends. You know, who you're talking to is a vast spectrum. Mm. Um, but I think. It always, or in most cases, comes down to the quality of the writing and how good the writing is.
0: That actually brings me on to another question that I think comes up a lot, which is the importance of having a platform as an author. Um, And when I say platform, I think a lot of people just kind of assume that means social media following, which I suppose is a huge part of it. But how important is it to have a platform as a kind of first time author how much do you take that into consideration as an agent if someone approaches you? And, you know, again, as an editor, how much do they take that into consideration?
1: Um, it's it's helpful, obviously. It's helpful for the author to have an existing platform because then there's already an audience there or a community there that are already having a discussion about the, the book or about the topic area. It's not essential, but it's helpful. But what I also will say and do say to people that are aspiring writers you know you can have somebody that starts becoming a, a insta book influencer and posting about books online um but all they talk about is, is YA YA this YA that this amazing YA novel that i read John green etc etc but then they come out and they want to publish i don't know sci-fi and then actually their platform is really conflicting with what they want to do and the publisher feels they need to scrap that platform and start again you know it is not essential to have a big Instagram following or to have a a successful podcast to get published. Of course it's not. I mean, look at Sally Rooney. She's, I mean, that kind of literary phenomenon hasn't happened since Zadie Smith, probably. Out of nowhere, uh, this kind of, um, not a fascination, but just like, adoration for her writing, Mm. this real kind of passion. Um, Off the back of her writing, Sally didn't have a big platform. But is that
0: different because she is a fiction writer? Like, I feel like there are, and I'm not the, you know, expert here, so I'm curious as to what you think. I feel like that's quite a different ask when it's a fiction writer and people kind of love the kind of debut author, the kind of young ingenue. And she definitely fit that mould, as did Zadie Smith when she came out. Whereas I think if you're a non-fiction writer or a journalist, that is you know, a part of the consideration when people you know, people are evaluating whether or not to Yeah. Okay, it. so
1: yeah, if you're ta- if we're talking solely non fiction, then yes, I, I, I agree. I think it is more important. Ultimately, in this day and age your content, if I can, call for want of a better word, but your content has to be operating on multiple platforms. It's not enough anymore. In most cases, most people can't make a living off just publishing one nonfiction book. That's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're super successful at it. So you need to be writing that book. You need to be perhaps having a podcast that's also talking about those, those issues, whether it's business or feminism, et cetera, et cetera, or you've got a blog that you're, you're writing original content and you're getting sponsored sponsorship for that. You're also pitching articles to journalists. It's not enough anymore to just let your content sit in one medium You've got to be clever. You've got to make it work harder and you've got to you know, make sure that it can sort of transcend into these different areas, into these different platforms and, and you can use it to, to cut through the noise as well. There's so much noise out there and there's so many people talking about what you're talking about in some way, I would imagine. And so to really be the one that stands out, you've got to be reverberating on lots of different platforms, making noise in lots of different places at the same time within non-fiction I think and so that's why platforms are becoming more important I want to
0: change tack a little bit and talk about self-publishing and find out what you think about that and I say that because I mean obviously my first book got published because I initially self-published it um, and it's worth pointing out that I didn't When I self-published Little Black Book, I didn't do that with a view to getting a book deal. Um, I didn't know anything about the publishing industry. It wasn't, for me, I wouldn't even, I didn't even call it self-publishing at the time. It's only now that I have a traditional book deal that I call it that and I kind of know that's the terminology. Um, But I never know whether or not to advise people to do that. As a kind of potential route to getting, you know, a proper book deal, because it worked for me. Yes. Yeah. But was I an exception? But also, I'm kind of seeing that happen more and more. I just wanted to get your take on self-publishing and whether or not it's something to pursue.
1: What? I wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey self-published. Yeah, I I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Oh god. Is that (laughs) that what we're aiming? (laughs) I mean,
0: I mean, it was very successful. Yeah.
1: Well, I think. Look, self-publishing is certainly an option. And I think especially, uh, I know there are a lot of fiction editors that track kind of the... um ebook charts and you know like amazon charts and things that are doing well that have been self-published and if you're doing well it's quite likely that a publisher will then reach out and want to publish you it's a good tester to garner a bit of market research so say for example you do have a platform you know even if it's quite a small one and you are interested um in putting a book out in the same way that you were you know you had a you had a, a a purpose of putting that book out you had a message you felt young women were looking for more information on business and 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 so then I think, yeah, it can work and it can be helpful, but it's not guaranteed. It's sort of luck of the draw. Yeah. I mean, the thing with that is if, if you were to put it out and it were to totally choke and not do well and not resonate with your audience, perhaps then you've learned something and you can go back and take a different tack and try something a bit different. Okay. Um, but self-publishing isn't gonna guarantee you a book deal. Okay. And if you self-publish badly, it will probably work against you in terms of getting a pub- in terms of getting a publishing deal,
0: and how do platforms like unbound
1: work because does that count as self publishing like i don't know if you would count unbound as self publishing actually i mean i wouldn't it's crowdfunding yeah it's kind of exactly it's crowdfunding it's like Kickstarter, but for books. Um, but you have, my main issue with self-publishing is the quality of the editorial. Okay. You know, if you're published by a publishing house, there's a hot, there's a structural edit. There's a lot of market knowledge that goes into positioning your book. It's also then copy edited. It's also then proofread. It might have a legal read index, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quality control that I think can be quite damaging if you self-publish. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite expensive, I think, to go through all those processes yourself. Mm-hmm. But again, depends what it is. Um, but yeah, a man's really interesting, but they have, you have an editor, you have somebody editing your book. They've even got in-house marketing and PR now as well. And they're starting to distribute into more traditional channels, uh, retailer channels. But you know, that again, you get the opportunity to pitch an idea to the world and if they love it, they invest in it and that, you know, inspires you to then go away and make it. And that's a really great first footing for getting your book out there. I wanted to talk a
0: little bit about publishing trends because that's something that you mentioned earlier. What do you think the kind of next big trend in publishing is, or what are you interested in seeing more of?
1: <laughs> cleaning influencers? <laughs> um, no, I, I was, you not heard Mrs. Hinch. I, no, I genuinely I'm so excited about Mrs. Hinch book. I think it's gonna when be is amazing. that coming out? That's coming out next spring. I, so oh right, I a nice quite, spring cleaning. Yeah, it's gonna be quite a tight turnaround. Yeah. Um, what are the trends um, of next year? Good question. I mean, if I knew that for sure, I would be incredible at my job and I would just, the money would be rolling in. <laughs> um, is, you know, is, you're forecasting, you're kind of sense checking. Mm. I think that people are still really interested in, I think there's going to be a rise in books around activism, I think you know people are terrified at the moment politically um with what's happening with the world I think environmentally as well there's a there's a lot of space there to create books that are tapping into that I think people want to feel empowered I also think that the rise in uh, and you know using books to empower empower themselves through knowledge and I also think that off the back of there being so much noise and blogs everywhere, articles written by everyone, fake news, Twitter, its you hit at all angles. People are definitely moving back to expert voices. Mm. They're not interested in having a book written by Joe Bloggs or, mm. you know, so-and-so writing a book about nutrition. It's they want to know that you've got credibility. You're an expert. You're a doctor. You're a psychologist. You're somebody who's worked in this industry for two decades. Um, so I think people are going to be looking to more serious nonfiction mm. to kind of um find a bit of uh reassurance yeah I suppose. that makes a lot of sense actually um yeah I think that's the main thing I think personal development as well still um which is a new just basically a, a, a more comfortable word for self-help you know <laughs> I was about to say that just is yeah. self-help just is self-help but we feel as British people we feel more comfortable with calling it personal development because it sounds more serious yeah I
0: think the term self-help has been stigmatized and it makes people feel like it's this kind of really like floaty wafty like american self-help books of the 90s um like chicken soup for the soul or whatever yeah which i've never read but i mean i'm sure it's pretty good it's like i'm sure i'd love it if i read it um personal
1: development's constructive yeah
0: exactly and it's yeah exactly actionable
1: and yeah so i think i think still personal development um and i also think there's more to be written in the area of um business Mm. I, i i that that area is so dominated by male voices i'm curious as to what
0: just to kind of finish things up what are i don't want this to end on a negative note but what are are either your frustrations with the publishing industry or what do you think the publishing industry could do better what do you want to see change in the next couple of years
1: um i mean The gender pay gap in publishing, (laughs) awkward, Um, that's something that I would like to see close um, and, you know, is something that now publishers are having to have quite frank and open conversations about. Um, I also think uh, diversity has been the sort of buzzword in publishing this year, um, which which is great. But um, I would like to see more of that, especially in terms of employment in publishing and having a di- diverse range of people that are working there, and, and and what they commission. I certainly, you know, when I rocked up to S- Simon and Schuster, I felt like a fish out of water. You know, there was a, a lot of people there that are, you know, in all in all of publishing, privately educated or from sort of middle class background. And you know, I was from a working class background, and went to a comprehensive, and you know, that's that's not a that's not a huge. Um, gap i suppose but i i you know I, I felt like that certainly I've, no i
0: definitely agree with you i mean i don't work within publishing but i obviously kind of encounter a lot of publishing professionals in what i do and i feel like it's pulled from a very narrow pool yeah. of people
1: class age race but also more diversity in terms of where these minds are coming from i suppose a lot of people that work in publishing and i'm and i'm one of these um you know i, d- I went to school i did an english literature degree and then i got a job in publishing mm. uh, at entry level and have and have been uh worked my way up whereas i fight to just get people into commission who have completely different life experiences and who think about things in a completely different way and have come from a different industry mm. i think the type of commissioning and the types of books you would get off the back of that would make it far more interesting
0: that's a really good point
1: i worry we all think the same and have the same frameworks in which we think because we you know a lot a lot of people working publishing did history degrees or institutional degrees and mm. have been in publishing from the get-go is something you work your way up in um so it'd be nice to have some people coming in at a more senior level from different backgrounds and different industries mm.
0: On today's segment of Ask Atega, I've got a letter from someone who's struggling to cope with the culture of misogyny in her office. Here it is. Dear Otega, About seven months ago, I was in need of a fresh start and took a position at a new company that seemed to be growing quickly. The role was a big step down and one that in hindsight I'm probably somewhat overqualified for, but I've worked hard to find my place in what is a very cliquey and inaccessible environment. Just as I began to feel settled, my team recruited someone new above me. While he seems pleasant enough, this colleague and my line manager have developed a real culture of misogyny in how they approach managing the team. They regularly belittle me and another female colleague, even mansplaining my own role to me. To make matters worse, my line manager is renowned for being largely incompetent and I'm often left trying to make up for his mistakes and pick up the slack, given that he delegates the majority of his workload. I and another female colleague separately spoke to them about these issues, but sadly it made no difference. I decided to escalate the situation and was eventually asked by the head of the department to go on record. When I finished relaying the problems, he simply brushed everything under the carpet, and rather than propose solutions, he made excuses. This is part of a larger boys club culture I've noticed since I arrived. For example, the all-male management team created an office-wide initiative months ago with an incredibly offensive title involving a play on words that portrayed, at best, degradation towards women, and at worst, sexual violence. It made me extremely uncomfortable, and after numerous complaints, they eventually changed the name. I've worked extremely hard, and despite it all, I enjoy what I do. The majority of my colleagues I work with day to day are wonderful on a personal and professional capacity. The company's headed in an exciting direction and seven months doesn't seem long enough for me to find something else. However, I'm confident that the competency of my manager and offensive culture will never change. And I have a lot of anxiety and dread before work each day. So I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Move on after only seven months. Uproot and find a healthier, more professional environment. Or stick it out. Hope it either changes or that I learn to ignore the issues. I'm lost and in desperate need of advice here. You all sincerely, have I time-traveled to the 1950s? My initial reaction when I first read this letter was to tell you to get the hell out. Um, nothing is worse than a toxic and misogynistic working environment. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. I worked in a really awful one a couple of years back and I quit after, I think it was after about eight months. And to be honest, my only regret is that I didn't quit sooner because working there really did a number on my mental health and just my emotions generally. Um, However, I was struck by the fact that towards the end of your letter, you said that you do actually enjoy your job. And like most of your colleagues, which definitely wasn't the case in my scenario. um, So it makes me think that maybe there is something there that's worth sticking it out for. Um, With that in mind, my advice would be, first of all, continue to call things out I think it's really good and important that you've kind of spoken up about certain issues I find I don't know what the offensive initiative was titled but I find it bizarre that any office would allow that to happen Um, so I think it's good that you're speaking up I think a good strategy to try is enlisting your other female colleagues to do the same Um, so what you said about you having made separate complaints is actually really good because what you want is for HR and management to be faced with just a large volume of incidents and complaints, which will make have, make them, they'll have to start paying attention. So I think keep up the pressure and keep kind of trying to get other women to do the same. Um, it's not going to be easy. I think you should realise that. And if I'm being really honest, you might well be penalised for that in kind of quite subtle ways. So I think you do have to make a decision going into this as to whether that's a trade-off you're willing to make. Um, A good approach to use to kind of try and lessen any kind of blowback is to try and use humour as opposed to being super serious about things. And I know that's not ideal when you're having to, you know, deal with these situations that often leave you seething with rage. You know, you want to be able to just call people out and just, you know, say to their face that they're acting like a dick, but if this is a place where you're determined to stay or you'd like, you know, you enjoy the work and you're doing good work, then you need to try and maintain your relationships to an extent. And if there's one thing that misogynists don't like, it's actually being called out on their misogyny. Uh, so I think if you can try and use humour to sort of puncture their jokes and, you know, the culture and just make them feel a bit silly whenever whenever they make these, you know, misogynistic comments, um, I think that can be a quite strategic way of dealing with it as opposed to, treating it very seriously even though it is serious I'm not denying that at all Uh, on a more practical level something you should be doing is keeping a written record of every single one of these instances which you keep at home and not in the office and so by written I mean literally paper and pen as opposed to anything digital and you know just have a little notebook so whenever anything happens whenever anyone makes a comment whenever your boss does something just write it down as it happens try and also tell other people Um, people who don't work in your company about these incidences. So whether it's like a friend, try and tell two people, but whether it's two friends um, and, you know, if offensive emails are sent, then back them up on your personal laptop or your personal email address, just so that you have, um, you kind of have a log of them. Um, I would keep logging complaints with HR who I think are probably likely to be a bit more cognizant of the risk that these employees' behaviour poses for the company Um, both kind of reputational and legally. I don't know how the situation is going to pan out for you, but the reason I'm suggesting that you kind of keep notes and make a paper trail and log things with HR is so that if this does escalate to the point where, you know, you decide to leave, there's an employment tribunal, or you need to make a case for unfair dismissal, then it will be absolutely vital that you have concrete evidence and documentation of all of these incidents and the way that your colleagues have been acting. So as I said just keep a record Um, and then on a personal basis I think it's important that you just kind of check in with yourself regularly and reevaluate the situation every couple of months Um, I personally don't think staying in a job that makes you miserable is ever really worthwhile but it doesn't sound like you're quite there yet and I think it feels like this could go either way at the moment so just kind of keep evaluating the scenario and your decision to stay and remember it's kind of an active opting in for you to stay and it should always stay that way If there are people in the office, you know, your kind of other female colleagues who you feel it's safe to vent to, do that. Um, I know it's probably not the kind of given advice to, you know, bitch about work um, at work. But to be honest, you kind of need to blow off steam somehow. But yeah, choose who those people are carefully. If you don't feel like there's anyone at work that you can really trust, then save that kind of chat for your friends and family. Um, And last of all, I don't think it's a bad idea to kind of just you know, lightly start job hunting and just having a look at what's out there. I think finding a new job is a process that can take months. And whilst hopefully things improve in the next couple of months in your current job, you don't want to get to the stage where you're actually at breaking point before you start looking for a new job. So I would just kind of start making inquiries, just kind of having a look at what's out there and think of that as a backup plan. Um, The fact that you're just kind of testing the waters. Good luck. And I hope that things improve for you soon. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask a Tega segment, just email podcast at womenhoo.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup, or to apply for a space on our mental workshop. You can find me at Otega Uwagba on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst we're there. See you next time.